This is a recording from Reunions Weekend 2010 at the University of Virginia, made possible by the Office of Engagement's Alumni Education Program. What direction is the United States economy heading in? What do you need to know to survive these tough times? Those were the topics of a seminar featuring international affairs expert Peter Rodriguez, associate dean of the Darden School of Business, and Karen Bonding, professor in the McIntyre School of Commerce. The moderator is Bob Gibson. I'm、uh, Bob Gibson, as Cindy mentioned. I'm a lapse journalist. I spent 31 years at the Daily Progress in Charlottesville, not being able to leave this place after graduating.、Uh, Sorensen, the institute that I、uh, am executive director of, is a 17-year-old institute that believes that、uh, political leaders can be trained in ethics and in civility and in respect for others in the political process. Before I begin with our panelists, it's my pleasure to thank the Office of Engagement. You know, when I was a student here, I thought the Office of Engagement was the group that booked、uh, the chapel for weddings, but it's not.、Uh, something else.、Uh, and to thank all of you for showing up on this、uh, this hot Friday afternoon for、uh, this afternoon's seminar. Seminar. Actually, the title is somewhat、uh, more ominous. It is what to do with your own BP stock. <laughs> and I'm sure that's one of the questions we'll get to. But Karen Bonding has won the coin flip and has agreed to go first. And、uh, kick off today's discussion about current and future directions for the U.S. economy.、Uh, she can address personal finance, ethical lapses, and how the current ongoing economic crisis was built on two myths. Karen, thank you very much. I appreciate that. I want to stand up. I just feel better when I stand up.、Um, so we want to talk a little bit about ethical lapses. And when I saw that as a subject, I thought, well, I mean, where do I begin? <laughs> right. There have been too many of them, so we're going to start with the beginning, and it is, in fact,、uh, based on two myths. The first myth is everyone should own their own home. That's a very American kind of myth. Sounds good, and and we can all kind of、uh, relate to that. And here's the family, and they have their own home. Myth number two. House prices always go up. Okay, that is, of course, until they don't. Okay, <laughs> and so on those two things, we built this incredible bubble. So it was、um, assisted, of course, by very low interest rates, and most of you remember all of this. So ethically challenged executives allowed their People, and they, these、uh, executives were in banks and mortgage lenders and all kinds of other places, and they allowed their salespeople to、uh, peddle completely new products. And we'll take a little bit of a look at、uh, what those products were. Then, of course, we also had not just the banks, but we had Fannie and Freddie and the Congress and senators and congressmen and everybody else. Everybody played their part, and nobody stopped to ask and said, "Does this make sense?" And what were those types of products、um, that they invented? One of the—I don't know that I can prioritize which one was the worst one, which was、uh, the least worst. But no dock loans is probably pretty high on the scale. What that means was no documents. In other words, whoever wanted to go in and get a mortgage, they didn't have to show a 1040. They didn't have to show a payslip. So they could go in and say, "I make 150 a year, and what kind of a mortgage can I get?" 
And they would think, well, maybe three times salary. Okay, so we're now getting up to close to a half a million dollar home. And nobody checked whether they could actually make the mortgage payment. So that's a no-doc loan. Negative amortization loans. In other words, each month, because you didn't make the full interest payment, the mortgage actually increased as opposed to decrease by each payment, okay? Zero percent financing teaser rate sort of follows along with the second one. No down payment. Now you and I, I think most of us grew up with got to have 10% down payment or something like that. Um, no down payment and the mortgage at 100 or 125% of value. And some of them also included closing costs. So you can already see you're already in negative territory before you even start day one. Now some companies that were a little slow to catch on realized uh, the error in their ways. So they proclaimed, let's dial up the risk, okay? This is, of course, Chuck Prince and Robert Rubin from uh, City. That was their uh, wording. Or this, I want to double revenues in five years with no increase in costs. You may not know who this is, but this is John Mack from Morgan Stanley, okay? Or this, Washington Mutual would find some way to make a loan. Anyway. And I spent 15 years in Seattle. I go out there every year. I talk to my friends out there. This was just totally devastating uh, to them. Now, he was uh, in front of the Senate here a couple of months ago, took no personal responsibility whatsoever. He blamed the club, though he didn't really identify what the club was but it wasn't his fault. So here, of course, is sort of the poster boy for what happened because there was another way that these people got away with what they did, and that was that they could regulate a shop, meaning that if you don't, didn't like the Fed being your regulator, you changed the charter and you got another regulator, okay? And that's what Angela Mozillo did. And we'll talk a little bit more about him in a minute. So where were the regulators? Well, they were completely tangled up. <laughs> they didn't know which way to go. They had no idea what the products were. Uh, not a pretty picture. And we, of course, all know where this story ended. House valuations went underwater. And uh, the alligators were waiting. So. What about the ethically challenged CEOs? Well, ethically challenged CEOs do not go to jail. Because in most cases, they did not break the law. Now, Mr. Mozilla has been charged with fraud. And he will probably go to jail. But not because of his lending practices, because of insider trading. And that, of course, is one of the problems, is that the lending practices, again, in probably almost 100% of the cases, were not illegal. But they certainly were unethical, and nobody stopped them. So here's, hopefully, Mr. Mozillo further down the road. 
Now, what did the senior senator, Mr. Levine, said? He said, the recent financial crisis was not a natural disaster. It was man-made economic assault. People did it. Extreme greed was the driving force. And it will happen again unless we change the rules. Have we heard this before? Every eight to 10 years, never again, OK? The uh, barn door always gets closed after the horses are out. But of course, it just reminds us of an earlier greed episode. This is from the 80s, and many of you will recognize Ivan Bosky. Greed is good. There is now the new Wall Street film out. I haven't seen it yet. It's coming out, I think, in the United States in August. But this is what it's all about. It was all greed. So the quest for riches darkens the sense of right and wrong. Can you guess when this was said and who said it? Close. 1,500 years ago. There is nothing new under the sun. And this will happen again. Unless we step back and say, this makes no sense. It will happen again. So where do we go from here? Well, a couple of ways we can do this. First, let's listen to the most famous investor of them all. The stock market has a very efficient way of transferring wealth from the impatient to the patient. Mr. Buffett. I was just cha uh, chatting with this couple up here in front whose son took my class a couple of years ago, I think, right? Yeah. And uh, we were talking about this thing of trading in and out. And there's a lot in the newspaper these days about the fast millisecond type of trades and the computer uh, capabilities um, of getting information prior to other people getting information and being able to trade on those things. Uh, that, of course, is the 180 degree from how Mr. Buffett uh, invests his money. Um, I think we could all learn a lot from uh, listening to him. This is in his testimony just a couple of days ago. Uh, in, um, I think it was at the Senate. I was out of the country, but I think it was at the Senate. Um, so one of my questions in, in the um, paragraph was, how do you look ahead? How do you find an advisor? And there really are just some very few, very, very basic rules. So the first one is ask friends whom they trust. Now, this didn't work so well for those who ask friends of friends of Madoff, OK? But generally, this is a very good model. If you have someone that you trust that are friends of yours, and you feel that they're telling you, I have a good financial advisor, I have a good broker, then that's a very good place to start. You will still want to interview at a minimum three different people um, to see what kind of fits in with you. Um, you've got to like the person. You've absolutely got to like the person. 
a couple of things that, and, and there's going to be some relative technical terms here coming up, but I want to make sure that you understand them because they're so crucial for you to finding some errors. We have something called an ADV2 form. The two line stands for two. This is an, a, uh, an SEC required form that every investment advisor has to file annually. And it's not difficult to read, okay? Uh, you think SEC, oh, it's going to be very technical and very legalistic and stuff like that. It's not at all. It is quite uh, easy to read, and you should ask for it, and they are required to give it to you. And in there should be any kind of compliance problems, any um, errors, how much they charge, and all of those things must be in this ADV2 form. So that is a copy that you should get, and they also always have to be filed in the spring, I believe before March 31, so you should get them sometime during the first quarter. So here, is, here we have a person sitting with an advisor. Now, how to use an advisor? And there are a few hints. First of all, choose a professional, not a friend. This is really key because if you don't like what's being happening and it's a friend or it's a family member, it's very difficult to kind of get out of that and, and make your complaints known. So I really urge you, find a professional, stay away from a friendship kind of relationship. Also, remind yourself, this is your money, and this is money you have worked very hard for. It is not your advisor's money. Now, in many cases, he's going to ask for a discretionary account. It is still your money. I mean, just don't forget that, and you should have some control over where it goes. Now, so here are some good questions that you need to ask. Transaction slips. In other words, if there is a buy and a sell, you should be seeing the transaction slip. The transaction slip will show the price, any kind of commission or taxes that there may have been on that trade. And then also, uh, you will use, of course, those slips uh, when you later uh, sell the security for capital gains or losses. So this is an important piece of paper. Where are the securities custodied? Now, uh, a custodian is generally a large bank. It's uh, Bank of New York, Mellon Bank, State Street. It's usually a very large bank. And that is where the securities are custodied. It's called the custodian. Now, as an example, at Madoff, the problem was he owned the custodian. Okay? It must be a completely separate firm. Quite often on your transaction slips, it will say securities custodied at, and it will say Pershing Securities or something like that. But you will want to make sure it's somebody separate from the firm that you're do doing business with. Big Four Audit Firm. We have at the moment four big accounting firms. Not that there aren't some other smaller ones that are good, but again, you want to have one that's not associated with the broker. Again, the same thing, Madoff, Madoff owned the audit firm. Okay, so no questions were ever asked. The last one is probably something you are not familiar with at all. 
GIPS Certified Performance Data. GIPS stands for Global Investment Performance Standards. Now, if anyone has looked at either my CV or whatever, you will notice I have three letters standing behind my name, CFA. It stands for Chartered Financial Analysts. Um, there's a, the headquarters is here in uh, Charlottesville, the CFA Institute. They started these performance standards about a decade ago. And these are now certified, and every single investment manager worth his salt will have GIPS performance standards listed on the bottom of their performance sheets. And if they're not, you need to ask for them and ask who has certified them. And it will generally also be one of the accounting firms. Okay? So again, it's another way that you can kind of be relatively secure that the data that you're being given is appropriate and is correct. So the question is, if you don't hire an advisor, can you actually do it yourself? Yeah, you probably can. But you need to spend a little bit of time. So think about how much time you spent planning your vacations with your family. Spend at least that much time planning your money. It doesn't have to be like this, okay? So investing is for the future. Do not react to yesterday's news. This is, again, what we were talking about, being very, very reactive rather than proactive. Um, and be prudent, be alert, know your advisor, ask good questions. And then, of course, watch your fees. Now, if you hire an investment advisor, in general, the fee is going to be approximately 1% a year. That might be worth it to you. I'm just telling you. That's about where the fee schedule generally lies at the moment. A final word to the wise. If a broker tries to explain a product to you, and you are not able to, when you hang up the phone, explain that product to your wife or husband or best friends, it's probably not for you. You want to know and understand the securities you're invested in. A lot of people, I remember the first time I saw something called auction rate securities. I thought, what the hell is this? And I couldn't get anybody to explain it to me. Okay? Well, then, of course, you came to grief because all of a sudden, there was no auction because nobody was bidding. Um, this, maybe everybody else can this, but I don't understand this completely. It's sort of uh, like that little kid with big eyes. Uh, lately, I've noticed that uh, when I get a, uh, a statement from the company for their earnings, they stated twice. They stated non gaps and gaps. Mm -hmm. What are they talking about? Gaps and non gaps. Okay. Yeah, I, I can't tell you exactly, but I can guess. Um, I have just been to London with 11 uh, students from um, the McIntyre School of Commerce, and the course is called International Finance and Accounting. 
And so the, the, the big four that we visited was PricewaterhouseCoopers. And the big issue is International Financial Regulatory IFRS, or GAAP. Now, everyone outside of the United States, which of course will not surprise you, uses IFRS, okay? The United States uses GAAP, okay? The SEC has said, well, we'll kind of move towards IFRS. Um, but of course, they've got a few other things on their plate at the moment. So um, who knows when that will be? But, but that's my guess, that one will uh, generally accepted accounting principles. Okay, you can also think of it in a different way. As an investor, when we look at a balance sheet and we look at an income statement, we generally prefer that earnings have kind of an upward track. Okay, does that make sense? Um, if you're reporting your income statement in the balance sheet, or income statement mainly, to the IRS, how would you like your earnings to go? Generally, that direction, okay? So the statements that are filed with the SEC for investor consumption and the statements that are filed with the IRS for IRS consumption can be quite different. That is not the case in Europe. It's one statement. And of course, the accounting principles in Europe are based on what we call principles as opposed to rules. Rules in this country are important because we have so many lawyers and they've got to have something to do. Okay? If it's wrong in principle, it's wrong. It's not rule number 15-2C. It's wrong. Okay? So it's a very different kind of environment. Given there's a lot of financial regulation reform uh, going to Congress, what are your thoughts on where the regulators should be? And what do you expect to come out of the, I guess? The Nothing is going to change. Nothing. You know, it's, it's very interesting because, uh, you know, I hate to go back to this, but um, I had with the students an unbelievable meeting for two hours with the former chair, chairman of what's called the FAS, which is the Financial, FSA, Financial Services Authority in the UK, which is the SEC, the CFTC, the control of the currency in all of these combined. So they have one regulation one regulatory authority, whereas we have, he said something like 130. Whatever it is, we have a lot, okay? The wires, right? But what he finally came up with, which was the most interesting of all, it's based on principles. I mean, either what you do is wrong or it's right. It's not rule number, okay? So the accounting principles and the legal way of, of running financial services in the UK are all principles-based. Now, isn't that interesting? We could learn something. And he said the most damning, um, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, the most damning thing that could happen to a person in the financial services industry is to bar the person. 
Have you seen this in the United States? Because there are so many different ways of, well, there will be fine. Well, every business has fines in their budget, for heaven's sakes. I mean, that's pretty easy, right? But to be barred from the business doesn't generally occur in the United States. So, um, no, I mean, again, it's closing the barn door after the horse is out. They'll come up with new rules and more new rules and more new rules, and Wall Street will always be ahead of them. It's just the way, it, it's just the, way the business is. Um, do you have any um, advice on, on asset allocation, diversification, um, yeah, I'll be very brief, but I also know that we want to make sure that Mr. Rodriguez get his time. Um, I am completely diversified. So let me just list. Large, medium, small cap stocks, non-US, including emerging markets, that's five asset categories right there. Commodities, precious metals, kind of 5% or so. Tips. Treasury Inflation Protected Securities, and then, of course, cash. So that's eight categories. You should have all eight at all times. How about bonds? Yeah, that's the tips. Thank you. Tips and the cash. Thank you very much. Our next speaker is Peter Rodriguez. He's an economist who specializes in the study of international business. Not in technology. <laughs> So he can tell us what we can do with our BP stock, where we can put it. Uh, but first, his, his talk is to address uh, issues, current issues in the U.S. economy. So ladies and gentlemen, Peter Rodriguez. Well, hi, everybody. Uh, you can hold your applause. I, I interrupted you there. Um, being an economist, I'm, I regret to say my job is not to bring you good news. Uh, typically, uh, we don't bring it. And so if you haven't checked your portfolio today, let me just say don't do it. You know, wait. Uh, maybe have a drink first. Uh, if you're planning on a trip to Hungary, you might want to wait on that, too. Uh, I think that currency is going south. Um, in the time that we have, I want to give you a little bit of a hint on where I see sort of the current state of the U.S. economy, a bit of the global economy uh, as well. Um, you know, I have the same sentiment that Karen had at the beginning, which is sort of where do you begin? There's so much to talk about. Uh, this crisis is so colossal. You could talk about a lot of different things, and we could certainly take a lot of avenues going forward. I'm going to try a few of them. If you want to shepherd me in a direction that you find more interesting, I'm happy to do that. Uh, but in any case, we'll start. And it's almost as if Karen and I would have coordinated, because I think we have about the same opening slide, which is to say, uh, this is a picture of a bubble. Uh, you can see two lines there. The red one is an US aggregate index of housing prices. If you listen to NPR or Squawk Box or anything else, we'll talk about the Case-Shiller index. This is 20. Um, this is sort of uh, 20 markets around the US. And what you'll see, it's indexed at 100. And you can just see how spectacular was the rise in average home prices across all these markets. This isn't, include, this isn't breaking out Miami or Las Vegas or San Francisco, the high growth. This is an aggregate. And it's astonishing. If I could trail that out back here, we'd see home prices marching along at a really steady, small, boring rate forever until about this period of time. And then they just go through the roof. And you can see they've come down really sharply. If you've been on that side of the equation, I apologize, but that's the sign of your pain. Uh, the blue line is the average uh, price per square foot, and it's measured against the right-hand graph. So you can see that went from a peak and an average at around 280 bucks per square foot on down below to like 190 over that period. 
Now, if everybody stayed in their home and just held on to it, maybe they don't feel that, but of course that's not the way things work. Uh, these are highly leveraged transactions. This goes back to what Karen was saying. People with no-doc loans, people borrowing even more than the price of the home, this is a crusher. And a lot of them were really taking a gamble, too. On the way up, this is the ultimate party. On the way down, it is horrible. Uh, and in that mix, of course, we have this uh, pretty interesting cocktail of not just the people buying the homes, of course, but the financial institutions who are really making a, a great living and having really good times uh, issuing this debt, buying this debt, moving it around the financial system. So that's where we get all the pain coming down. Going forward, periodically, you'll see a little black line. Uh, I don't know if this is a, yeah. That little black line there is September 10th, 2008. That's about the day the world ended, just so you know. Uh, this is about when Lehman Brothers was about to go down and when everybody was having midnight meetings at the Fed. And This is really after people know there's trouble, but about the moment that things kind of go from being bad to, to haywire and worse. So we'll come back to that in a couple of ways. Let's see if I can make this puppy move. Oh, so what do we do to deal with this? Uh, one of the things we did and one of the concerns I have going forward is what we do with our monetary system. Um, one of the reactions that was taken early was to assist the banks who had all these bad loans by essentially injecting lots of money into the banking system. This is what Chairman Bernanke and the folks at the Federal Reserve Board did. They sent money into banks, basically exchanging really nice assets like treasuries and cash for really lousy ones like mortgage-backed securities, CDOs, and the like. That represents that huge spike there at about September 10th, 2008. Just to make it clear to you, this is what money growth normally looks like. It's really slow and boring. That's a good sign. It's stable. You don't really want to mess around with the money in the banking system. You don't want to print money too fast. And as a sign of that, I'll just show you. This little blip, which would have been a large blip looked at in most periods, that's 9-11. So that's how much we reacted to 9-11. Double the money supply overnight. Used to be you'd go into a classroom and you'd say, hey, suppose we double the money supply overnight. It's a joke. It can't really happen. It's just a mental exercise. Well, not anymore. We did that. And the concern that you would have would be, gosh, what happens to all that money? Couldn't it produce a lot of inflation? Couldn't it be destabilizing? Really, it was a dramatic, desperate, Hail Mary type of attempt, uh, but founded on some ideas that I can tell you a little bit more about. In any case, that's what happened there. Uh, just to show you the, how this uh, re uh, reflects banking activity, the blue line I've added to this chart simply reflects uh, the change in reserves at depository institutions. So you can see that most of the time, reserves, this would be what banks could lend out, don't change very much at all, but suddenly they panicked, and this dramatic acceleration represents their withdrawing all the money they had in the market to lend. So as the banks pulled back in a huge panic, we see the Federal Reserve reacting in an extraordinary way. Credit ends, you can't get commercial paper issued, all the bad things we remember from that period really come about during that time. The Fed is reacting and it's an enormous bet and gamble. It's a lingering problem, is what I'll say. At about the same time, lots of indicators in the economy start to go from bad to worse. And one of the most prominent ones that has lots of political economic concerns is the unemployment rate. We had an update to unemployment today. The number is about flat, but we can see that the number uh, in good times is closer to 5% in the United States. Uh, it was already accelerating about the time that everything went haywire, but we can see it went up to about 10% and has stayed there for a long period of time. Most accounts and most projections I read and trust would say that's probably looking not to go very far in either direction very soon, but it's a very high rate and it's challenging to us for a lot of ways. This is a lot of people. They don't have income. 
They don't have jobs. They can't pay taxes. They can't pay for anything. And of course, that's a big issue. Lots and lots of people here. It's a little deeper than that, too, in a political economic sense. And I can add to that by saying, uh, by looking at not just the blue line, which we looked at earlier, but this red line. This is the proportion of the labor force, or the number of civilians unemployed for 27 weeks and over. So 27 weeks and over is more than half a year, of course, and you can see that that number really skyrockets, too. So at least 7 million people who were in the labor force now do not have jobs, have not had jobs for six months. That's pretty much exhausted most everybody's ability to finance their way through, and of course, that's a potential issue uh, politically, it's a potential issue domestically. Uh, just from a, an abstract point of view, which is what economists tend to prefer, there's a lot of lost capacity and production and good vital workers that are not being utilized in any effective way. And that's, that's deeply concerning. You peel the onion a little bit more on unemployment and you continue to see reasons why uh, this is a delicate period in our nation's history. Here's one of them. Uh, I'm just separating the unemployment rate into two groups. The red line represents people who have uh, less than a high school diploma and this is their unemployment rate. And this is people uh, like we get here at UVA uh, who, have, uh, who are college graduates. You can see that in good times, the proportion of unemployed who are college graduates is usually pretty low. It's only about 2% or so. But it doubles in a very painful way. And if I looked at financial sector and other places, it's even more. But perhaps what's even more concerning is this line here. For all those Americans in the labor force who have less than a high school diploma, you know, it's a situation that goes from bad to worse, from 8% unemployment at the onset of the recession, which is this gray area, to nearly 16%. So you can see sort of the incidence of unemployment has dramatic concerns for us. It, it emphasizes the value of the education for one, but also the political economic issue. Feeling good yet? We can then go to look at, uh, of course, the government's reaction. I, I talked about one of those reactions, which was the monetary base. The Federal Reserve basically saying, I'm not going to let the banking system collapse. In a very real way, they were incorporating a lesson that was written by Milton Friedman, oddly enough, when he wrote about uh, the Great Depression. And he said the real problem with uh, the Depression that went from being a recession to a depression was that we allowed so many banks to fail. We allowed the entire capacity of the the monetary and financial system to fail. And that was the great error of the Federal Reserve. So Ben Bernanke, being a, a really big fan of Milton Friedman's, I can personally attest to that, uh, said, I'm not going to let that happen. So he really just doubles the money supply overnight and says, you know, we learned that lesson. We're not going to let it happen again. It postpones an issue. It, it raises another challenge. But that's essentially what we did. And in a fiscal sense, we reacted very dramatically as well. We all remember stimulus spending and the like. And here's the evidence of it. This is the uh, federal surplus or deficit in about a 12-month moving average. We can see that it was hovering at around $400, $350 billion per year. No small change there uh, throughout the early part of this decade. But it was improving a little bit. I should also, I should also mention this does not include off-budget items like the war. But it was improving in an operating sense until uh, the recession when it started to fall and then massive amounts of stimulus spending make our current annual deficit in excess of one trillion dollars per year. That feels bad. That's a lot of money that the federal government is spending to try to prop up an economy. You can say that perhaps it's done its job in stopping the rise of unemployment, which almost surely would have been higher, but it certainly raises another issue, which is how do you pay for it? What do you do with that debt? And that's, of course, a second lingering issue. Number one was we reacted in a monetary sense. There's a risk of inflation and a banking system risk. 
we acted in a fiscal sense. And there's, of course, the question of how do we pay for all this, which is a deep, deep challenge. Running at a pace of $1 trillion per year in excess, that's, that's a rapid rise in our national indebtedness that we could be worried about. For a benchmark, if you think in trillions, the U.S. economy is about $13, $14 trillion per year. So what do we do to finance this? There's my black line. We start issuing more treasury notes and bonds. Net issuance really coincides with about the amount of the deficit we have to finance. You can see it really goes in the opposite direction. But then when we get into trouble, we, uh, well, we're borrowing. And we're borrowing not just from domestic sources, but increasingly, uh, as we have been for a long time, from foreign sources. And in big amounts. That would be $1,600 billion, which is $1.6 trillion of net increase in treasury bills per year. Uh, that's a huge financial uh, challenge for the federal government, not to say anything for the states, going forward. And the question is, what do we deal with it? What do we do with that? Um, it's coming back down. I think projections make me feel better that it's coming back down, but not very fast. And this is a challenge. And who's to say exactly where we go from here? Just so you know, most of this debt is relatively short-term in nature. This, oh, this green line is the total federal debt number. So it's about $7 trillion. That's about what we owe, net debt for the federal U.S. government. And most of it is either uh, less than one year in maturity or less than five years in maturity. The average for all Treasury debt is about five, a little less than five years. So we're financing a huge increase at relatively short-term rates, which for now are actually not that bad. That's at least one positive, that for the moment, the interest we pay on this is comparatively low, just like the interest you receive on money market accounts or savings accounts, or et cetera. Uh, but this is, uh, of course, concerning. Uh, I'll give you a, a look at how low these rates are. This is six-month Treasury bill rates. This is what the government's paying in interest on six-month Treasuries. Goes from about 5% in the middle of 2007 to really, I think this is 25 basis points, or one quarter of 1% currently. Uh, basically nothing. This is hoarding. This is people saying, I'm so afraid to buy anything else. I'll be happy getting nothing as long as the US Treasury. Uh, so it's, in some sense, a good thing for us in a fiscal sense, but a sign of the amount of panic there has been in the market. Uh, we can even look at uh, TIPS, which is uh, what Karen mentioned earlier, Treasury uh, Inflation Index notes. These are notes that protect you against uh, uh, the rate of inflation. And we can see that even there, investors are getting comparatively little, uh, more like 1.4% or something like that. So the rates are low, which is good, but the debt is really skyrocketing. And that means a couple of hard choices, right? Uh, raise taxes, cut expenditures, or that might be it. Uh, default would be one. I don't think we want to do that. And since we print the dollars that we pay our debt back in, that another choice might be a, a deflated currency uh, or sell assets. And we're uh, not going to do that. But um, what we could do is look at the tax picture. So let me present a few tax questions for you. The effective individual income tax rate for the top 1% of earners in the United States. If you're one of the top 1% of earners, uh, your effective rate, that's not the statutory rate that you see printed, but the effective rate, what you pay in taxes divided by your income, uh, is around 19%, uh, more, maybe close to 20 now. This is, what we would, this is what's popularly known as the Bush tax cut, really a return to this period that was sort of pre-1990 uh, that led to that. Now, despite the fact that effective tax rates are lower, we still see that uh, the top 1% of income earners pay about 40% of all federal personal income tax liabilities. 
in the United States. So even though the rate's lower, most of our taxes do come from a relatively small portion of the population. Now, there are a lot of things that go into that. One of the things is we've had a widening income distribution, so the wealth at the top has grown a lot. But it does make you question how sensitive this group might be to even higher tax liabilities. You're already paying about 40% of total personal income tax liabilities. Where do you go from here? Just so you know, this blue line is the percentage of individual income taxes paid by the top 10%, which is around 73 74%. So if you're going to raise taxes, it's got to be on these two groups, or else you're really not going to get a lot of bang for your buck, I would think. Or you're going to aggravate problems that are already facing people who are unemployed and struggling. So hard choices, you know, hard choices. That's what we're all about in economics, hard choices. Um, I can add to this. Uh, I'm trying to think, where's my happy graph? I don't have a happy graph. Uh, is there a spin? Uh, well, if you're in the bottom, this shows the bottom 60% of income earners in the United States. This green line is the bottom 20%. The blue line is the bottom 40%. The red line is the 60, uh, the 60%, the 40 to 60 percentile. Their share of individual income tax liabilities has fallen over this period, which in some ways could be seen as good. These uh, bottom two groups, or about 40%, are net income recipients from the federal income tax. And if you're worried that they're not earning a lot and they're unemployed, it's really not going to be feasible to tax them. They don't have a lot of income to begin with, so you really can't do that, and that makes this challenging. Yes. So that shows that the number I've heard is 47% of households and 47% of, of, of individuals do not pay federal income tax. Is that correct? That's correct. So we have almost half the people who get free federal government. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. So their voting decisions, uh, as far as spending, they're not going to pay for it. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, I, I, when I made this graph, I certainly had that in mind. My, my, my takeaway from the last three would be, if you're going to get this money, there's really one space, and it's not here. So, so half of voters, or potential voters in the United States, That's right. will not pay for anything that they vote for. And not only that, they're getting, they're getting a prop. <laughs> <laughs> well... This is, exactly, uh, this is exactly one of the concerns that you have. You, you really have to make those tax rates go back up. So if I were going to guess, I'd say you do that. Now, part of this is also that during this period, you do have a, a rapidly rising rate of income inequality. A lot of the in, uh, gains during this period are all at the top. So that's in some ways financed or helped this come true. But if you're really concerned about this group, uh, even if you wanted to really raise the rates to ensure that everybody was above zero, uh, there's not a lot there. Uh, there's not a lot that you can do. Not in, not in the income tax sense. Your options are things like taxing gasoline or VAT tax or other things. But, but yes, in fact, that's, you're on the point that I was trying to emphasize, that this is going to be politically econo in a political economic sense. A lot of pressure on the top. How does the United States compare to other places in the world, like Canada or Europe, as far as the percentage of people who get free government? It's actually not very different. It's actually not very different. The income distribution in the United States is considerably wider than in those places. A lower bottom end, a bigger top end. The percentage that is sort of completely on net is, is not all that different. In fact, it looks more like them now than it did 10 years ago in terms of that ratio. Um, it looks slightly different in a place like Japan. I'm just trying to pick other high income nations that are peer-like, where the income distribution is even tighter. But this is not all that unusual. Um, 
that's a pretty stark number though, and, and that's exactly where I was. If we went back, let's say, to here, let's say, somewhere in the mid-90s, you know, maybe you'd get back whatever revenue that this group represents, but that's a big issue. It's true, and it's a very similar, it's a very familiar problem for usually not as high an income nation as ourselves, but in developing nations, that's exactly the case. Uh, Brazil, let me take a good example, kind of at the middle income level. There, maybe 75% of the population doesn't pay any taxes. So, of course, you have these uh, threats of sort of populist reform, right? Uh, I'm going to do this or that. I'm going to Robin Hood this society and make you better off. Uh, and that's a potential issue here for sure. Uh, on the flip side, it's really hard to know what to do with uh, this group if you have a high proportion of people who've been unemployed for six months. Well, but we got along. Unless you throw. Yeah. We got along with a, a, much, with a much bigger percentage of the population paying taxes, didn't we? Somewhat. I wouldn't say it's huge, but somewhat. You can see right here about 1985 is when you start with the earned income tax credit and other federal income tax ways that, that change this dynamic. It would be unfair for me to, to say everything like, unless I had a complete picture of aid, state level, federal level, uh, in-kind transfers and the like, but, but clearly on the income tax rate, what I was going to say here is I just got to, these taxes got to revert. I don't see any other thing you do, right? I mean, if I were betting on one thing, I'd bet these federal income taxes at the highest level got to go up. Or you find new taxes. Or you default, on, or you do really reckless things on the debt, but yes, I was painting that scenario, so... So, so what makes you in the middle income quintile? Let me see. I think to be in the top 1%, you need more than like 220 per year. Yeah, it's really not as high as you might think. Uh, the top 10% might even be 160 or something like that. It's really not nearly as high as you think. I'm not as familiar with the bottom. I'm sorry, I just don't know that. I could find that. I don't think it'd make you feel any better, but I could find that. <laughs> Let me keep going. Um, not that I necessarily need to. Uh, there are other things that are happening. I just want to emphasize a uh, current issue with the U.S. dollar. One of the challenges you would have, um, so here's a funny thing about the debt that we have. Um, we've issued debt to people who've been very happy to buy it for no interest payment whatsoever, effectively, 25 basis points, right? Uh, and what do we pay them back in? Well, we pay them back in green small pieces of paper that we actually make. So there's really no threat that we will run out of the ability to make green small pieces of paper. The threat is we'll be disciplined enough to not make so many of them that they inflate away the value of our wealth or destabilize the economy. As, as of now, that really hasn't happened, which I think is probably the one, a positive note. I'll give you a sense of that. This is the exchange rate between the euro and the dollar. And this is euros per dollar. So as the curve goes down, the dollar gets weaker. And as the curve goes up, the dollar gets stronger. We can see that the dollar was depreciating it, it really you know, uh, steadily. The euro had gotten to its sort of maximum strength about the depth of the problem. And then a funny thing happens, which is the dollar gets considerably stronger. It's really a flight to safety issue. Oddly enough, people did, even against the euro, feel like, I'd rather have those you know, U.S. Treasury notes and, and those things rather than have alternative currencies. So even though we're the seat of the problem, we are the recipient of part of the benefit, which is to say, you know, I'd rather be with that ship in the storm even if the problem started on that ship. So that's sort of helped the U.S. 
And because uh, there have been some troubles as of late uh, with, of course, the Greece issue, worries about their ability to manage their own deficits, which are probably at the margin too large, and whether or not Europeans can uh, effectively manage themselves fiscally, we've seen a slight return in strength to the dollar vis-a-vis -vis the euro, which, of course, is manifested in a lot of ways. For the moment, that means that we're kind of on reprieve. But I think the worry you would have is with a lot of debt floating out there, how long will investors be willing to lend us money at such low rates? If the rest of the world economy were to turn around quickly, um, or they suddenly found other assets and places to invest, they could flee the U.S. Treasury, and that would mean a rapid rise in rates, which would have sort of the double whammy, right? We would have a huge debt and would suddenly be forced to pay, like an arm, higher interest rates on it going forward. So that's a worry and a risk about, about what we do uh, with the U.S. dollar. Uh, I could talk more about that, too. But we see that there. I think I'm beginning to run out of time. What can I say that's good? Um, um, things are tough in other places. That would be somewhat good. If we look at the Greece situation, we would see that um, Greece is sort of interesting. You know, when you made the European Union... Um, everybody was so skeptical, and I think it was surprisingly successful for a lot of periods of time. But one of the initial weaknesses was uh, concern of maybe they let in too many members. Uh, when you join the European Union, one of the things you do is you adopt that single monetary policy of the whole union, and you, in some sense, give up your rights to control your monetary policy in the way that the Federal Reserve does, or the Bank of England, or the People's Bank of China does. And the analogy I would use is to say that's like giving up a thermostat in your room. Your currency is like your thermostat, and you can say, if it's too hot, I'll make it cooler. If it's too cool, I'll make it warmer. But when you're Greece, and things are getting really cold and chilly, uh, and the rest of the Europe doesn't want to go along with uh, turning down the air, you're just stuck. If the Germans say, nine, forget it. I, I don't think that this is prudent. We really don't want to let any flames of inflation start here. Then Greece just sort of needs to adjust, and they really didn't adjust nearly quick enough. They were already at the margin of fiscal stability. In fact, there are good examples. Everything, I remember when they sort of cheated and fudged their numbers in sort of the gap uh, IFRS way to kind of get their numbers to look right to join the union. But they were really kind of an outlier. And I'm afraid that that fear is spreading from Greece, uh, Spain, and Portugal, which are much, much big. Well, Spain, much bigger, um, are also you know, uh, having some of that problem. I think, I think the Europeans will be highly motivated to make this work out. But it's caused some trouble. Gross domestic product of these countries like Greece um, is the interest on their debt. I don't know exactly. Uh, so I can tell you that the debt to GDP ratio in Greece is at least 120% of GDP. So they have debts that are more than 120% of the total value. That's still far uh, above what the United States is. And they've been there for a long time. And that's where they get into trouble, too, which is that. So in a period like this, here's their, here's their debt. That's what I wanted to point out. Their debt's not growing at slow rate. This is their uh, liabilities changing year on and year out. But in the middle of the crisis, it starts to grow at more like 20% per year. And starting at a high debt level, it's just unsustainable. And, and quite rationally, a lot of investors said, these guys aren't going to make it. <laughs> I'm not going to buy that debt anymore. And that affects the entire euro area because that debt is denominated in the same currency as all the, all the other uh, members of the European Union. So they're way up at the edge, but Spain is equally high, and Portugal is about equally high. Uh, I, I'll be honest, I don't know why people still believe Spain is going to, uh, they just look terrible to me in a lot of ways, uh, but there's still more confidence in them, and maybe it's the too big to fail 
issue there as well that they feel like the other nations will run to support them. Uh, so let me try to go one other place. One of the issues Greece had was that they're pretty heavily reliant on exports. And one thing we can see, I wish I had my line here, is that their exports uh, really fall off the map in the middle of our crisis. So as the global economy begins to tumble, their susceptibility, because nobody's buying things anymore, we're not buying cars or other things of which Greece has a portion, they really get hurt quickly. And so they were the weakest player, and I think the, the real challenge is will anybody uh, step up in a meaningfully rapid way to ensure this doesn't change. I think it'll put pressure on the European Union to think about what changes they might make going forward and how they think of membership. But that's a pretty serious issue. Oddly enough, um, it has taken pressure off the United States and its, its issues, so uh, now would be a good time to move quickly. And I don't know, that's about it. So what would I say? Let me get out of here. Uh, I had a couple issues that I thought would be useful. I didn't talk at all about financial reform, but if clearly that's an issue. I think we're going to see pressing issues for some sunlight over derivatives. We'll see if that happens. Consumer protections have been uh, all the rage. They're written into the current bill. Um, we'll have to see if they walk the, walk the talk. The Federal Reserve looks to be getting increased power, for sure. They wanted even more than the bill suggests that they will get. But I expect to see the Fed even stronger. Um, if I would say one thing, I'd say I'm not panicked. They're good news, but uh, you know I'm tenured. I live in Charlottesville, so there are good reasons to not be panicked. But um, I would say that things really could have been a lot worse. Uh, I know that doesn't that maybe that's cold comfort, but I really believe that. I really believe that you could have had 16% unemployment. I really believe that you could have had uh, better conditions in Europe and higher pressures on the dollar. We never know the counterfactuals, but I clearly think that's true. That's right. We did not take action until September of 2008. We did not, we did not take extraordinary action. We already started lowering rates uh, dramatically at the Federal Reserve level. Could, could we have waited till the day after the 2008 presidential election to take that extraordinary action? Could, could we have? Um, I, well. You would, have missed, you would have missed the opportunity to save the banking system if you buy into that belief. Because in September of 08, Lehman was clearly going down, and it was definitely the domino. Morgan Stanley would go down next. Merrill would go down. That was, and they were definitely gone. So you would have said, I'll let them fail. You couldn't have done it and kept, you couldn't have done it and moved Merrill to B of A and save Morgan and all that. But so, you would have been so, in another scenario. So action was forced be taken prior to the presidential election? Definitely. Now, what would have happened if instead of waiting as long as they could have before the presidential election, they took action, say, in uh, the third or fourth quarter of 2007? I mean, my, my understanding, what I'm saying is, I think the Bush administration was hoping they didn't have to deal with this until after the election. I think there's a, a possibility of that for sure. I, I'm certainly they didn't want to do it. It certainly made them confront real bugaboos about uh, do you rescue uh, Wall Street banks? I mean, do you go in and take this action? And I'm certainly they, they didn't want to do that. Could they have done other things? I think if I were, um, I think if you were at the Federal Reserve Board, you could have thought I should have moved quicker. But I don't think that that was really most directly a Bush issue a Bush uh, administration issue. Um, they, might, you know, they, could have, they could have instituted some rules at Treasury that said, here's the way we would unwind 
uh, a big bank, or here's what we'll do and not do. Um, they were certainly hoping against hope. And, and, and some of the big banks, of course, kind of kept feeding information that suggested, oh, we've got a, we've got a white knight coming. We've got this source coming. There's a private solution happening. Um, I wish I could tell you that I was confident I knew the real inner workings of that. But I knew that at the time when I read that, I kept thinking, ah, Lehman's going to get bought at 20. Are they going to get bought at 15? Are they going to get bought at 10? And you just never thought it would be that. But there was, um, I would add to the greed problem, the stupidity problem, which was somebody must have known how much bad stuff was in the market. And I think there was just a game of musical chairs. Nobody wanted to be left out. Thank you, Peter Rodriguez. No. We have 10 minutes left for questions uh, from, for both of our distinguished professors. And then after that 10 minutes, if you have individual questions, I'm sure they'll hang around and, uh, and talk with you for a while. So who'd like to ask a question? Of, yes, go ahead. I'd like to ask you a question. I mean, I'm sure you went to that conference last October when we had Paul Tudor here, and he was saying that all these currencies are going to fail, and the last currency scheme is going to go. And I think I might, I might be wrong, but I think the doctor goes around and Well, then we back up a little bit. But, you know, his, his viewpoint at that time was that, you know, all these countries, the euro and U.S. dollars, are not working. Basically. And um, what is your feeling now? I mean, it, have things changed in the last nine months? Do you still feel like all the currencies are only going to be the last uh, currencies gaining that in, in China? Or do you like, uh, Well, I'll, I'll give you a scenario. Uh, there's certainly plenty of people who think that. Um, and have been for a while, and they've done pretty well. Gold may not have done as well as many of them guessed, but there's still lots of people concerned, particularly given the recent challenges in the European area. Uh, a really well-known investor, David Einhorn, has also really recently talked about uh, betting on gold, and he won big on the housing market because he foresaw these issues. Um, I, I think that the scenario you have to play out, which is plummeting currencies everywhere, for one thing, is a little bit of a micro market, a big issue of how that all plays out. Uh, you can't all run for gold uh, easily at the same time, uh, which makes that a big issue. Um, there's also a lot of alternatives to the ones that we typically think of. Uh, I wouldn't bet on China uh, so much, but even a currency like that would start to look really good, um, even with capital controls and the like, if gold started to, I'm sorry, if uh, the leading reserve assets of central banks were to change. I could see political limitations to that and the cost being so high that you'd be willing to take some really bitter medicine to prevent that from happening. So that could precipitate a lot of really drastic, drastic action. Um, I'm, not, I, I'm not an investor of that uh, caliber. I, I don't think about it in that way. I would just say I, I don't think it's a really likely outcome, even if it's a good bet from a risk-adjusted standpoint. I don't know if that makes sense. I would say that I can't imagine it's got a high probability of happening. But I can see that at prices now, it might not be worth, it might not be too costly to invest that way, given that many other assets aren't earning much for you. Karen, I believe uh, China has just uh, surpassed Japan as the world's second largest economy. Uh, what are their strengths relative to ours right now, and what are our strengths relative to the Chinese economy? From an investment point? From an investment point. Um, <clears throat> I've spent time in three summers in China a decade ago. I spent time in India. Um, one third of the world's population live in those two countries. 
And if you're an investor, you have to be there because that's where the growth is. They desperately want uh, to improve their standard of living. They want to buy the refrigerators, the microwaves, et cetera, et cetera. Um, there's nothing to keep them from doing so, and that's where the growth is. Are they going to be volatile? Very. Uh, you know, it's up 80% and down 50% and so forth. But you must be invested in those two countries. Um, so you can ask, what should I invest in? You just invest in the country. Um, we're very fortunate that we have these things called exchange-traded funds, which work like index funds. You buy them like stocks, and you just buy the country. And that way, you don't have to make a decision, should I buy a cement maker? Or should I buy a supermarket? Or should I buy a bank? Or whatever. You buy the economy. And uh, in, in my view, that's the way to go. And that should be part of your emerging markets portfolio. Other question? Yes. writing these history books? Um, Depends on who writes it. I would say um, fiscal policy is notoriously slow. It's really not a remedy for any problem that you have within a year or even two years. It's just really slow. Think about how slowly the money's leaked out. Trying to spend $800 billion quickly is bound to result in lots of uh, bad practices. I think it's probably bound to be misspent in some ways. Um, it might be seen as a valiant effort, but um, I have a hard time believing it's going to be the key to most anything. Even if you look back at like uh, CCC or WPA or all the acronyms we remember from the Great Depression and Roosevelt's administration, it's really hard to tell that they had significant economic impacts, even if they had uh, emotional impacts and uh, impacts on the way people thought about themselves and the confidence they had. To really trace it out is it's hard to say, so I just lack the confidence in the empirics of fiscal spending to say that that's likely to be good. Was it the right thing to do? Um, well, uh, you know, I think the answer is it depends, but doing nothing in a period like that, uh, you, you're never going to know the counterfactuals, I'll say, but I, I can tell you this. Uh, if you don't spend a lot of money, if you really go the other direction, most history tells you that in the short run, you experience a lot of unemployment pain. And so uh, maybe it depends on who you are when you read the book. Karen, do you want to add anything? Next, yes. Always the United States has been a leader in some technology or some area of uh, industry that has uh, led the world. And right now we're still leading a little bit computers, but we're losing that edge a little bit. As we come out of this recession, and hopefully we will, what's going to be the leading industry? I mean, what's going to be leading? I mean, you know, one time we had inventions, we had airplanes, we had televisions, you know, then we had computers, you know, that. Now we have the computers, or we have cars for a while, now we have computers. And it seems like the whole world's caught up with everything. Where are we, what's going to be our leader? Uh, I read a magazine called The Economist, and I read it pretty religiously every week. It is probably the best magazine in the world. 
they just had a supplement on innovation in emerging markets. It is technology, I agree with that, but it's going to be coming from India and China and other emerging countries. That's where a lot of the new technology is being developed. They've got lots of people, got lots of very smart engineers that are graduating. And uh, someone said to me the other day, so we have Boeing and Airbus right now, so where's the competition going to come from for those two? It's not coming from Bombardier. It's going to come from China. So. I would say that um, it's really hard to measure these things in a way that makes me confident I can predict. So, for example, if the real currency of the world growth is ideas, ideas really can't easily be sequestered geographically or anything like that. If anywhere they reside in corporations, and given how multinational and global they are, it's really not clear that they have to have any domestic residence or a strong strength. And, and to that, I would also add that it doesn't seem like it. But the vast majority of our economic well-being is really domestically made. Our biggest market is our market by a long shot. 85% uh, of the U.S. economy is mostly domestic. And that's really true for most of the advanced economies. They're, they're more domestic than global. You can cite all sorts of figures about the amount of cross-border trade, but so much of it is domestic. So really it's domestic productivity growth in the workforce that matters as much as anything else. Uh, and in leading a market or an industry, it's a challenging one, too. So think of Japan. They certainly made their way up, but it wasn't uh, a bulletproof vest. Um, if I read the history books in 1988, uh, like my college roommate, I remember, uh, who took four years of Japanese, because he was sure we'd all be working for the Japanese by now, uh, I'd have got it wrong. And, and it makes me nervous to predict much about that. But, but I certainly agree. The future of the world economy, there's hardly any way to see that it's not uh, more, much more Asian than it is now. Thank you, Peter Rodriguez. Thank you, Karen Bonding. Thank you very much Thank for you. coming.